Well, today we continue in this uh, deep theological chapter of Romans chapter 9. We saw last week Paul's passion for his lost kinsmen. They had such the great privilege that God had given to them, culminating in the fact that the very second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, became incarnate as a Jew. Yet with all the proof, with all the prophecy, with all the opportunity, as John 1.11 says, Jesus came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. As Paul was writing Romans 8, teaching about the full assurance of salvation, because salvation is God's work from first to last, as he crescendos with his most powerful pinnacle of truth that nothing is able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The flip side reality of the lostness of his kinsmen, his fellow Jews, grips his heart in great sorrow and in unceasing anguish, for they have in mass rejected their Messiah. They've willfully turned their back to Christ. They don't know the inseparable love of God. And it breaks Paul's heart. The rest of chapter 9 now deals with some really hard but yet very honest questions that arise from the rejection of the Jews. Since God is the one who's the initiator and the completer of salvation, what happened to the Jews? Since salvation is the work of God, why are the Jews rejecting Jesus as their Messiah? Has God's word failed? Has God's plan been thwarted? Was not God able to save his own people? These are real questions that the early church was dealing with. Why have the vast majority of Jews rejected Jesus as their Messiah? What is God doing? Well, the rest of chapter 9 addresses these pressing questions. And as we study these questions and answers from God's word today, we will learn about the incredible character of our God. We will learn of his mercy. We will learn of his great patience. We will learn of his election and sovereignty. Remember how a few weeks ago I used the illustration of train tracks to describe the two rails of the truth of our salvation. One rail is the reality of God's election and choice. Our salvation is initiated, secured, and sealed all by the work of God alone. Remember that unbreakable chain of salvation right there in Romans 8, verses 29 through 30. And Ephesians 1 says that God chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. God chose us before we chose him. God loved us before we loved him. God's predestination and election and choice is taught throughout the Bible. Our God is a sovereign God, and to be sovereign by necessity means that it comes with 
predestination and election and choice. Well, the second rail of the train tracks is mankind's responsibility. We choose and we are responsible for our choice. The offer of salvation is given to all. Romans 10:13 says, "Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved." As Joshua said to the children of Israel in Joshua chapter 24, "Choose you this day whom you will serve." And he says, "As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord." God chose us before the foundation of the world. Absolute truth, God's choice. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Absolute truth, our choice. The Bible clearly teaches both rails. The train of salvation runs down both rails. Paul now in Romans 9 starts off talking about this first rail, God's election, God's will, God's plan. Then at the end of Romans 9 and into Romans 10, Paul starts talking about the second rail, about man's responsibility and to respond to God, to the offer of salvation by faith, to believe, to confess, and be saved. Paul presents to us deeply theological truth, yet biblically balanced understanding of God's election and of man's responsibility. He neither falls off the nice edge, you know, turning man into a robot, uh, you know, with God's will, without having real choice. And he doesn't fall off the nice edge, turning man into the sole determiner of his fate, with God passively standing by, just hoping that someone will choose him. If anyone is lost, the responsibility is all theirs for rejecting Christ and the salvation that he offers. And yet, if anybody is saved, all the glory is God's, for he alone saves. You see the beauty of the truth and the balance of the scriptures. So let's look at Romans 9. As Paul teaches us about this first rail, about God's purpose of election, and dealing with this question, why have the Jews rejected Jesus as their Messiah? I've broken down chapter 9 today according to these four questions that give it the structure in um, Romans chapter 9. The first is, has God's word failed in verses 6 through 13? The second question is, is God unjust in verses 14 through 18? Is God unfair in verses 19 through 29? What was Israel's real problem revealed to us? In verses 30 through 33. In each section we'll see a question, an answer, and then biblical illustrations, biblical proof to support the answer. So follow along as I read Romans 9, verses 6 through 13. Romans 9, 6 through 13. The scripture says, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. 
About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Father, now we pause, having read your scriptures and more to go, that on this day, your scriptures, the truth of your word, would come alive to us through the Holy Spirit teaching us. And Lord, through it, we would see more of you. We would see more clearly ourselves. And we would be more conformed to the image of Christ, our Savior. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, Romans 9, 6 doesn't spell out directly for us the question. It starts off actually with the answer. The question is understood. He could have put it like this, like he does in verse 19. If we follow that pattern, the question behind verse 6 would be, you will say to me, has God's word failed? In light of all the great privileges that God had given to Israel, right? The adoption, the glory, the covenants, the law, the worship, the promises, the patriarchs, and supremely the Christ. In light of all that God has done for the Jewish people, has God's word failed in saving them? What a staggering question, right? What a question of first importance, But we know the answer already, don't we? And they knew the answer already. Isaiah 55, 11. So shall my word be that goes out of my mouth. It shall not return to me empty. It shall not return void. But it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Jesus said in Matthew 5.18, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Isaiah 40, verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. We could go on and on and on with verse after verse after verse. They knew it. We know it. The word of God cannot fail. So that means that the rejection of Jesus as the Messiah by the majority of the Jews is exactly what God's word actually teaches. It's not as though God's word failed. This is exactly what was to be expected. No, nothing has gone wrong with God's plan or with God's word. God has kept his promise to Israel. Verse 6 says, Not all that are descended from Israel belong to Israel. God has kept his word to Israel. But it's important to know which Israel. There always have been two Israels. The physical descendants of Abraham and the spiritual descendants descendants of Abraham. God's promise of salvation wasn't to ethnic 
Israel, but to spiritual Israel. Being a Jew physically, ethnically, does not equate to being saved. For you see, not all Israel is Israel. Not all the offspring of Abraham are his offspring. Now that's not word games. That's important truth. Something that Paul has already taught in Romans. In Romans 2, 28 and 29, he said, For no one is a Jew who is one merely outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. Ethnic Judaism is outward, physical circumcision. Spiritual Judaism is inward, circumcision of the heart by the Spirit. And in Romans 4, Paul taught that the true descendants of Father Abraham are all those who believe, are all those whose faith is counted to them as righteousness like Abraham, whether Jew or Gentile. See, the true descendants of Abraham are the spiritual children of like faith. Jesus in John 8, 39, as one of the translations puts it, tells the Jewish religious leaders as they declare, Our father is Abraham. No, Jesus replied, For if you were really the children of Abraham, you would follow his example. You would be men and women of faith. See, the main point of verses 6 through 13 is spelled out for us in verse 8. This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise are counted as offspring. Spiritual Israel, not just ethnic Israel. And to prove his point, Paul uses the scripture. He uses God's word to show that God's word hasn't failed. And he does that with every single question in this chapter, using God's word as proof of the veracity of God's plan to illustrate that not all the descendants of Abraham are true descendants of Abraham. He uses two specific Bible stories, the story of Isaac and the story of his twin sons, Jacob and Esau. Did you know that Abraham actually had several children? First there's Ishmael and then there's Isaac and then there were even others that came later. See, all who descend physically from Abraham are obviously children of Abraham. But it's only through Isaac where the children of the promise are counted as true children of Abraham. Verse 9 is a quote from uh, Genesis 18.10. Sarah shall have a son. See, all of Abraham's children were conceived in the normal course of time. That is, except one. Sarah was unable to have children and was now well past childbearing. She's 90 years old when she has Isaac. Isaac is the son of promise. Isaac is the miracle birth. Isaac is the birth that only God could bring about. Isaac is totally from grace. Totally from God's plan. Totally God keeping his promises. See, the true children of Abraham are children of grace. Are children born of God's divine work. 
are children born through the direct handiwork of God. It has never been that God's eternal promises were simply for the physical descendants of all of Abraham. But it has always been that God's eternal promises were for the spiritual descendants, those born by grace, those who were born by God's divine will and plan. And he further proves this with the next illustration. Isaac had twin sons, Jacob and Esau. But before they were born, before either of them could do anything to try to merit God's favor, not because of anything that they did, God chose. As it expressly says, for his purposes of election alone, God chose Jacob instead of Esau. Paul is stressing He's emphasizing here that God's choice had nothing to do with the worthiness of the boys themselves. It was totally God's gracious choice. God chose that Esau, the firstborn, would serve Jacob, the secondborn. You see, the the lineage of promise was supposed to go through the firstborn. So it should have been Esau. But God chose Jacob in order that the purpose of election would continue. Paul is making it clear that God's choice of Isaac and God's choice of Jacob had nothing to do with them. It's not because of their merit, but it was solely because of God's choice and by his grace alone. Paul is underscoring that God's election of his redeemed people is solely by his grace. Now you can read in Genesis 25 how Esau of his own choice, sold his birthright to Jacob. And you can read in Genesis 27 how Jacob deceived his father Isaac to get the blessing of the firstborn. We see here again the balance of the truth of God's sovereign choice interwoven with man's responsibility. Now, it's easy to read the wrong meaning into verse 13, right? But it's, it's not a verse about feelings or attitudes. It's a verse about choice. Jesus actually uses similar language in Luke chapter 14 where he says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he can't be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. The point of the idiom is not at all about feelings of hate, but about choice, about priority. Jesus is saying that a true disciple will choose him first and foremost above his family above those he loves and cherishes the most, above even his very own life. The priority of Jesus is first above all. Paul in verse 13 is reiterating what he has already said. God chose Jacob and not Esau. Verse 13 is not about the feelings of love and hate, but about God's choice, but about priority, but about God's will. God's promise did not fail. God's word has not returned void. No, it is fulfilled only in true Israel, in the children of promise, in the children of faith, in those who receive God's grace. God's election is an expression 
of his grace. God's election is an expression of his grace. Well, then Paul brings up the next question. Is God unjust? Verses 14 through 18. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then God, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Paul anticipates that the natural human response to God's election is to assert that God is unjust. He's unjust in choosing one over the other for his own divine purposes. The question here is whether God somehow did something wrong, that he was unjust by showing mercy to Isaac and Jacob and choosing them and not doing the same for Ishmael and Esau. Paul's answer to the question is the strongest Greek negative possible. By no means, God forbid, a thousand times no. It is impossible for God to be unjust. God himself is the very measure of righteousness and justice. He has no capacity at all for unrighteousness and injustice. It is his very character to be gracious, to be compassionate, to be merciful to be loving. God is never unjust. Paul again illustrates God's justice with two biblical examples, with Moses and with Pharaoh. Paul's way of defending God's justice is to proclaim God's mercy. It's very beautiful. Very beautiful. Paul's way of upholding God's justice is to point to God's character of mercy is to point to his compassion. Quoting from Exodus thirty-three nineteen, Paul says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Mercy and compassion are essentially anonymous. But mercy refers primarily to the action, where compassion refers primarily to the feeling or the temperament that's behind the action. So what is Mercy. Mercy is not getting what one deserves. Mercy, by its very nature, cannot be deserved. Mercy can never be earned. If it's earned, it's not mercy. Rather, what is deserved, what is earned, is getting what the just consequences of your actions are. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Since mercy can never be earned or deserved, then God doesn't owe anyone mercy. You can't say it's unfair for God not to show mercy to someone. Therefore, if God was to act in complete justice, giving us what we all deserve without mercy, all would be justly judged and condemned. But folks, our God is merciful. 
And as verse 16 says, so then it depends not on human will, not on our exertion, not on us, but all on God who has mercy. As another translation puts it, so it's God who decides to show mercy. We can neither choose it nor work for it. Nobody has any claim upon God's mercy. For if we did, it would no longer be mercy, but it would be something that we would have deserved by our own actions. Salvation depends not on our human will, but on God who has mercy. Our God is a merciful God. But the reality is that not all people receive God's mercy. For so many have rejected it. Pharaoh didn't receive God's mercy. But we must remember that it says in Exodus that Pharaoh hardened his own heart by his own will, by his own choice, before it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Both are true. Pharaoh chose. He wanted to harden his heart to God. God's hardening of Pharaoh's heart was a giving him over, like it says in Romans 1, 24, to his own hardening, to his own stubbornness, to his own resistance to God. God's hardening falls onto what Pharaoh did to himself. Now, Paul's reasoning here goes something like this. Can we say that God owes anyone salvation? Well, no, of course not. We can't say that. No one can earn it. It is by God's mercy and grace alone. And since God owes no one salvation, then he is free to give it to whomever he chooses. It is his choice. In fact, God would have done no injustice at all by leaving us all to perish with the just consequences of our own actions. That would be fair. That would be fair for God to do, to just leave us in the condemnation of our own choices. The fact that any of us know him is sheer grace. The fact that any of us are saved is only mercy. And now how we thank God, right? That in his justice, he also shows his mercy One wrote, the wonder is not that some are saved and others are not, but that anyone is saved at all. For we deserve nothing at God's hand but judgment. If we receive what we deserve, judgment, or if we receive what we do not deserve, mercy, in either case, is God unjust? No. If therefore anybody is lost, the blame is theirs. But if anybody is saved, the credit is God's. This paradox contains a mystery for which our present knowledge cannot solve, but it is consistent with scripture, history, and experience. Another wrote, God is holy and must punish sin, but God is loving and desires to save sinner. If everyone is saved, it would deny his holiness. But if everybody is lost, it would deny his love. The solution to the problem is God's sovereign election. He said a seminary professor once said to him, Try to explain election and you may lose your mind. But explain it away and you will lose your soul. Oh, the mercy of our God. 
What the next question Paul answers is, is God unfair? In verses 19 through 29. The scripture says, Who will say then to me, Why, why does he still find fault? Or, or who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, designed to show his wrath and to make his power known, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, There they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as a sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, If the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have become like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. The question is, If God makes the choices, how can he hold man responsible? Is God unfair? Well, Paul answers this question in three ways. First, in verses 20 through 21, his answer is, God is God. And that's just the way it is. That's the way he has set things up. God has ultimate authority. God is the divine potter. God is the divine molder. We are but clay. There really doesn't have to be any other reason after that. I mean, he is supreme over all things. So his plan of both divine election and human responsibility is his plan as the supreme sovereign of the world. It is consistent with his character. And we don't have to totally understand it. But we do have to receive it as revealed true from God's word. Because our human understanding is so limited, even sincere questions about God's sovereign election will ultimately go unanswered. One wrote, to fully understand God, we'd have to be equal to the God who made us. A notion that's even more absurd than a clay pot being equal to the potter who molded it. It's like the gap of knowledge between an ant And a genius scientist. But yet the gap of understanding between God and man is infinitely greater still. But yet there we are. Yet there we are answering back to God. See, we so often in our human arrogance picture ourselves as the judge. And God is the one accused. Us demanding of God that he answer us. When the truth is that God is the judge We are the accused. God doesn't answer to us. We answer to him. The infinite does not answer to the finite. The potter does not answer to the clay. No, God alone 
has the authority to order his world as he sees fit. And know how blessed we are. Oh, how blessed we are to have a God who is so powerful, so wise, so good, so gracious, so merciful, our God. Well, the second way he answers the question of unfairness is to point to God's patience and mercy. The truth is that God endured with great patience those who are actively and willfully rejecting him. If he acted with true justice, as we already talked about, no one would stand. But instead, he proactively persists with patience. That's our God. Peter describes God, his great patience, and so wonderfully in 2 Peter 3, 9, saying, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God's patience and his common grace is real, and it offers real opportunities for all to repent and turn to him. Verse 22 says that God endured with great patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. The grammar here is very important. The vessels of wrath have been prepared for destruction by their own rejection of Christ. One wrote, the Greek verb prepared is passive. God is not the subject doing the preparing. There is very clear sense in the use of the passive voice to put the responsibility full on the shoulders of those who refuse to heed God's word and believe in his son. They are prepared by their own rejection. If you look at verse 23, you see a parallel phrase, vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. This parallelism, this structure, this organization is put together to teach us, to help us see the differences between the two. The vessels of wrath prepared themselves for destruction. The vessels of mercy God prepared beforehand for glory. God prepares people for glory. Sinners prepare themselves for judgment. Again, we see this balance between God's purpose and election and the real responsibility of man to respond to Christ. And we see the enduring patience of our great God. The third way Paul answers the questions of unfairness is to point to the prophetic fulfillment of scriptures. First, Paul has two quotes from the prophet Hosea. The point is simple. Part of God's plan all along was a full inclusion of the Gentiles into the family of God. Not my people, I will call my people. Not my beloved, I will call my beloved. They will be called sons of the living God. The great inclusion of the Gentiles, us, into the beloved family of God has been God's promise since Abraham and is fulfilled in Christ Paul teaches this truth with such power in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 12 through 16, saying, Remember you, Gentiles, us, that were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, 
In Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Oh, the wonder of our God's plan to extend salvation to all, making us all one body of Christ. But then in Romans 9, Paul quotes Isaiah twice to show that it was God's plan all along that only a remnant of Israel would be saved. I can remember going with my mom to go shopping for a remnant. Have you ever gone to a carpet store because you needed carpet for just one room in your house? And if you're smart, like my mom was, about how to stretch a dollar, where do you go to look for that carpet? You walk all the way through the store till you get to the back wall of the store. Because what's on the back wall of that store? Remnants. Carpet remnants. Leftover pieces. Scrap that came from larger installations of carpet. See, in this season of the history of the Jewish people, as God prophesied, only a remnant, only leftovers, only a small portion of the whole people would remain faithful to God, to trust in his son as their Messiah. As in the days of Elijah, God has kept for himself a remnant of true Israel, true children of Abraham, true children of the promise. God is not unfair. No, God is working out his plan, which gloriously opened up the floodgates of repentance for the Gentiles and preserved for himself a faithful remnant among the Jews. Well, that leads us to the last question. What was Israel's real problem? Verses 30 through 33. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith? But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law? Why Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Again, we have the question and the answer and the biblical illustrations. The question is, how did the Gentiles attain righteousness even though they weren't pursuing it? And all the while, the Jews didn't attain righteousness even though they were pursuing it. Answer, because God's righteousness is only attained by faith. Never, ever, never by works. Never earned by us. One wrote, the Jews sought for righteousness but did not find it, while the Gentiles who were not searching for it found it. The reason? 
Israel tried to be saved by works and not by faith. They rejected grace righteousness and tried to please God with law righteousness. The Jews thought that the Gentiles had to come up to Israel's level to be saved, when in actuality, the Jews had to go down to the level of the Gentiles to be saved, for there is no difference, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Instead of permitting their religious privileges to lead them to Christ, they used these privileges as a substitute for Christ. What a sad quote. I mean, look at these words. Instead of permitting their religious privileges to lead them to Christ, they used these privileges as a substitute for Christ. I mean, how tragic is that? Evaluate. Folks, that can happen to us. It often happens within our churches where we choose religion over Jesus Christ. Where we choose our works of righteousness over faith and obedience and believing. See, the Jews pursued righteousness, but they pursued it in exactly the opposite way from which righteousness may be found. They pursued it in their own strength, in their own works, by their own merit. And they consequently fell into self-righteousness. That was Israel's real problem. It was their pride. It was their pride in themselves and their privileges and their works which led them to stumble over Christ. Christ came to his own people as a rock, as a savior. Stand on the rock. Seek the shelter. Find salvation. No, what did they do? They tripped over the rock. It became their stumbling stone. The very one who came to save them. They rejected. To show that this, is, this too was part of God's plan, Paul again uses scripture to prove his point. From two places in Isaiah, Paul combines two statements to indicate the two contrasting reactions of people to Christ. To stumble or to believe. Have you stumbled over Christ? Or have you believed and embraced your Savior From verses 6 through 29, we have seen that God's purpose in an election exposed Israel's unbelief. And from verses 30 through 33, we have seen that Israel's unbelief was their own choice because of their own pride. So in summary, let's conclude the chapter. Has God's word failed? Never. It's exactly as God had said and planned. Is God unfair? Never. Our God is so merciful. Is God unjust? Never. Our God is a God of great patience. What's the real problem? Pride. Self-righteousness. Rejection of Christ. Folks, we are responsible for our rejection of the gospel. We are not responsible for our acceptance of the gospel. Today, embrace the fact of your responsibility and respond to the gospel. Put down your pride. Put down your selfishness. 
and receive Christ, your rock of salvation. Believe in him. Believe in all that he has done and all who he has become a child of God today. Today can be your day of salvation. I'm going to conclude with this final quote. No one will deny that there are many mysteries connected with divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Nowhere does God ask us to choose between these two truths because they both come from God and are part of God's plan. They do not compete. They cooperate. The fact that we cannot fully understand how they work together does not deny the fact that they do. When a man asked Charles Spurgeon about how he reconciled divine sovereignty and human responsibility, Spurgeon replied, Oh, I never try to reconcile friends. See, our God is a God of election and choice and predestination. And our God is a God of mercy and great patience, offering his son and salvation. Today, do not harden your hearts. Do not stumble over the stumbling stone of Christ. Today can be your day to embrace your Savior. Let's pray together. Father, now amazing truth, powerful truth from your scriptures. Give us insight into into your character, God into your amazing sovereignty and the purpose of election, into your amazing mercy, bountiful, to your enduring great patience. Lord, election exposes your grace, your love. And we thank you for that. Were it not for your proactive patience, for your amazing love. Were it not for you sending your own son for us to die in our place and to take our sin, were it not, we would all be lost. But yea, Lord, you have sent your son and you have given your mercy and you do reach out with great patience. So if you're here in the facility or if you're online and you've never Embrace Jesus Christ as your Savior. Now is the time. Don't stumble over the stone. Stand on the rock of your salvation. All glory and honor and power and wisdom and wealth be to our Savior, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.